In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So we're getting very close to the end of the book of Exodus. Um, last time we spoke about how God renewed the covenant to the people. So if you remember, um, when Moses went up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, uh, the people at the bottom of the mountain, they were uh, worshiping uh, an idol, a golden calf that they had made because Moses was gone for a long time and they didn't know what happened to him. So they began to worship this idol saying that this is the God that brought them out, out of the land of Egypt. Um, and then when Moses came down the mountain again, he was um, furious, he broke the tablets, um, and um, God punished all the people who were uh, sinning and who had worshiped the idol. Um, then he spoke to Moses saying that because of the sin of the people, um, he was not going to go with them um, to the promised land. He said he was going to send his angel, but he wasn't going to go himself. Um, but Moses interceded for the people, and he asked to, for God to forgive the people, and he said, if you do not go with us, then we will not go. Um, and so God kind of relented from his anger. Um, he renewed the covenant with the people. He told them again, um, and he, he was speaking to Moses. He said to Moses that he was going to be with them the way that he was with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Moses went up the mountain uh, a second time, um, and, and he brought with him two new tablets, and God remade the tablets of the Ten Commandments um, again. And he reiterated um, the law that he had said um, the first time. So it's kind of like everything is like rewind and do it again. Okay, so he received the new Ten Commandments. He reminded them about the laws of the Sabbath. He reminded them about um, all of these other commandments he had given them or had given to Moses the first time uh, when Moses was on the mountain. So that was chapters uh, 33 and 34. Uh, today, we're going to be finishing up. Uh, well, we're not going to finish the whole book, but we're going to maybe be about halfway to the end. Uh, we have, there's like six chapters left. We're going to hopefully get through like the first three. Um, here it is. God is now, or, or, or Moses is, is, is writing here in Exodus. He's writing um, about the actual construction of the tabernacle. So earlier in the, in the book, when Moses was on the mountain, some of the things that God was, was um, telling Moses is the exact instructions of how to build the tabernacle, what materials were to be used, the dimensions of everything, um, and a very like complex uh, and detailed plan that he gave to Moses. Um, when, when he came down from the mountain, he didn't have any opportunity to, to execute that plan because immediately the people were already sinning, and so all of that happened. So now, after the covenant has been renewed, now we're going to be reading about the actual construction of the tabernacle by the actual people who are going to be building it. So a lot of what we're going to read is kind of reiterating uh, what, uh, what was already said to Moses, um, kind of putting it into action. So um, we're going to read through it kind of quickly because um, we're going to pause wherever there's some things to discuss, but a lot of it is things that... Uh, we've already heard um, as far as the symbolism behind the different types of materials and the colors and what they all mean. We spoke about that in detail before, so I'm not going to go into that again, um, but we're just going to kind of see now what's, what's going to happen. It says, Then Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together and said to them, These are the words which the Lord has commanded you to do. 
Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh day shall be a holy day for you, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire throughout your dwellings on the Sabbath day. So he's reiterating again. There's been so many times now that God mentions the Sabbath day. Like if you were to think what is like a, the thing that is repeated the most in the book of Exodus, it's probably the commandment of the Sabbath day. Like that is how important the idea that, that um, separating one day for the worship of God is and how God saw it. He told them not to do any work, not even to do, do the work of gathering for their needs, for the food. Uh, God said, I'm going to take care of that on the day before. On the Friday, you're going to have double the amount of food so that on Saturday you don't have to gather any food of the, the manna that came from heaven. So, so And, the, and the, the, the punishment for breaking the Sabbath is so severe, so severe. The punishment is anyone who does any work on the Sabbath will die. Like that is how much God wanted to emphasize the importance of um, keeping the Sabbath day holy and resting in the Lord. And as we mentioned before, resting in the Lord does not mean just doing nothing. It means dedicating, consecrating that day for God to worship God, right? To worship God, to do the service of God and all the things that we do. And of course, we know in the New Testament, um, the church has appointed that this Sabbath, the Christian Sabbath or the day of the Lord, is the day that is Sunday to commemorate the resurrection of the Lord from the dead. And so we come to the church on Sunday and we, we, we dedicate this day um, to God. And Moses spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord commanded, saying, Take from among you an offering to the Lord. Whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it as an offering to the Lord, gold, silver, and bronze. So, the material that is going to be used to build the tabernacle, where is it coming from? From the people. So the people are offering their material. The people are offering their talents because it is the, the artisans and the craftsmen and the builders, all the people who are going to build, you know, they're from the people. And they're obviously also offering their time, right? So everything about the building of the tabernacle, it's like completely supported by the people. It is the, the, the financially supported by the people. It is from the time of the people, from the talents of the people. And this is the way that the church is now. Everything about the church is supported completely by, by the people. This is why the, the, the donations that are coming to the church is what supports everything, right? It supports um, everything. But it's not just the money, you know, because sometimes the money is the easiest thing to give. You know, if we want to give something to church, Maybe the easiest thing for me to do is to write a check or not even have to write a check. I just click a few buttons on the Internet and money goes to the church. Um, but in addition to that, it is the, the, the idea that I'm giving not just of my wealth, but I'm giving of my time. I'm giving of my skills because for the church to prosper and succeed and for it to really fulfill its duty as the body of Christ to support one another, that I'm offering my talents to God through the church, offering them to other people in the body of Christ as well. Also, he's saying whoever is of a willing heart, like he's, he's making this, he's not, this is not by compulsion. He did not say to them by force, we're going to come and we're going to take percentage of what you have in order to build the tabernacle. He said whoever is of a willing heart, right, whoever is, who, who has a zeal for the house of God, who wants to build the house of God, let him bring an offering to the Lord. 
And so all the people who would respond, they're doing it willingly. They're doing it joyfully. They're not doing it because they are compelled to do it against their will. Blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen and goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, badger skins and acacia wood, oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. All these materials we spoke about before that go into various things, some of them into the tabernacle themselves and then some of them um, to be used in the service of the tabernacle and some of them to be used for making the vestments of the priests. Okay. So those are all like the raw materials. Now he's going to speak about the people who are going to do the work. He says, all who are gifted artisans among you shall come and make all that the Lord has commanded, the tabernacle, its tent, its covering, its clasps, its boards, its bars, its pillars, and its sockets. The ark and its poles with the mercy seat, remember that's the ark of the covenant, and the veil of the covering, the table and its poles, all its utensils, and the showbread, also the lampstand for the light, its utensils, its lamps, and the oil for the light, all the items that are in the tabernacle that he's mentioning here. The incense, altar, its poles, the anointing oil, sweet incense, and the screen for the door at the entrance of the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering with its bronze grating, its poles, all its utensils, Everything had poles because you, you in order to carry it, you, you had to have poles. Everything that was made had like these rings so that you could put poles in it and carry it from place to place. Because remember, the tabernacle was to be transported around. They were not in a permanent settlement. You know, this was not in a, in a city, in a, like a permanent place. They were still wandering. And so they had to be able to easily transport everything from place to place. The hangings of the court, its pillars, their sockets, and the screen for the gate of the court, the pegs of the tabernacle, the pegs of the court and their cords, the garments of ministry, the ministering and the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons to minister as priests. So remember, who is it that was going to be the priests? Uh, Aaron and all the descendants of Aaron from this time throughout all of the history of Israel, those were the people who were the priests. It was only Aaron and his sons. All of the other Levites, so Aaron was the son of, uh, from the tribe of Levi, so all the other um, Levites were also to minister, but not as priests. They would be the ones who would, um, for instance, carry the, the items from place to place or work as artisans and so on. And all the congregation of the children of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. Okay, so they all heard what he said, and they listened, and now they are going to give. Then everyone came whose heart was stirred and everyone whose spirit was willing and they brought the Lord's offering for the work of the tabernacle of meeting for all its service and for the holy garments. So when they heard the need, they immediately acted. Like it says their heart was stirred. Someone who is sensitive to the work of the Holy Spirit and who is like spiritually alive and spiritually awake is quick to respond when their heart is stirred, like to feel that they're like, for instance, if the Holy Spirit is rebuking, if the Holy Spirit is warning, if the Holy Spirit is guiding, if the Holy Spirit is calling me to do something, someone who is close to God is quick to respond to this stirring of the heart and does not discount it, does not silence it or quench it, um, but, but responds quickly. This is the person who is spiritually active, who is spiritually um, alive and who feels that th God is calling them specifically for, for this role. 
you know, sometimes in the service or really in, in many things, um, people just want to dump the work on someone else. You know, like if we come and we see, well, there's a lot of people here um, when there is some service that needs to be done, well, someone else can take care of that service. We sure, we're sure someone else is going to be able to come and step in and do whatever needs to be done. But someone who is, like, again, spiritually active or spiritually alive will feel that this is a responsibility that falls on them and not just a responsibility that is going to be taken care of by someone else. And they consider it to be a blessing, right? The work of God is a blessing. The work of God is not just a burden. It is not just, oh, I have so much work I have to do or I have so many things that are on my plate that I have to do or I have to prepare this, I have to do that. The person who is spiritually active and alert and, and alive, they see that anything that is doing the service of God, even if it is physically tiresome, even if it is not a glamorous job, but yet they see that they are coming to offer this to God and to his house, and so they consider it to be a blessing, that God is going to reward them for the smallest thing that they give to his house. So all of these people who are doing this work and offering themselves and offering their, their material goods for the making of the tabernacle, this was a huge blessing because this tabernacle, they were going to continue to use it for years and years and decades and decades to come. They came, both men and women, as many as had a willing heart, and brought earrings and nose rings, rings and necklaces, all jewelry of gold. That is every man who made an offering of gold to the Lord. Also, the people who gave the smallest things, they could have very very easily said, like the woman who comes and brings her earrings. It's like, wh what is that? What is that going to do? What is it going to accomplish for one person to bring their earrings? Um, is that going to really, in the big scheme of everything, is that going to really be enough gold to, to build anything? Someone could have very easily said, well, there are those who are much wealthier than I am, who have much more gold than I do, that they can afford to give their gold, right? Whereas me, it's like I, I barely have anything, and you want to take even the little that I have, and yet they didn't think this way. They took it again as um, a blessing for them to participate, and even in the smallest way that they could, to give, and it was all accepted by the Lord, and they received the blessing from it. And as we know from the story of the woman in the New Testament where the Lord was in the temple and there was all these wealthy people who were giving all kinds of money to the temple and then there was this poor woman who gave just a very small, like two copper coins, but it was all the money that she had. The Lord rewarded her and said about her that she is going to have a greater reward than all of these others who put in so much because she gave all that she had, right? So in the eyes of God, the way that he rewards and the way that he sees things is not the same as, as us. Maybe we look at things in terms of, well, what was the outcome? Like, what when you actually gave, like, did it make a big difference? Like, did it? what was the, the point of it? Did it make a big difference or not? Whereas God doesn't look at that. Maybe in the end, yes, it was just a pair of earrings, but in the eyes of God, this was greater than all of the other things. So we also, like, when we're coming to offer something to God, we think maybe the service I'm offering is so small, it's so minuscule, but in the eyes of God, maybe it is the greatest service. And every man with whom was found blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen, and goat's hair, red skins of rams and badger skins, brought them. Everyone who offered an offering of silver or bronze brought the Lord's offering. And everyone with whom was found acacia wood for any work of the service brought it. 
All the women who were gifted artisans spun yarn with their hands and brought what they had spun of blue, purple, and scarlet and fine linen. And all the women whose hearts stirred with wisdom spun yarn of goat's hair. Something that also kind of strikes us when we read this is all of these other miracles that God did for the people were things that were impossible for the people to do themselves. Like So for instance, there was no way for them to find food. So God sent them miraculously food from heaven. There was no way for them to find water for all of these people in the desert. So God miraculously gave them water that comes from a rock. Okay, But when it came time to build the tabernacle, God could have made a tabernacle. Like he could have just made one so that it appears. And now there's the tabernacle for them right, to use. But he didn't do that in this case. He said, no, we are going to ask the people to give of what is theirs in order to build the tabernacle. Because ultimately, the purpose of the tabernacle, it's an act of worship, right? It is, it is an act of us giving to God. Not that God needs, not that God is waiting for something that he needs, but he wants us to freely give of ourselves to him. So it is appropriate that the house of God, the place where the people are going to come and ask for the forgiveness of sins, where they're going to come and praise God to worship him, is a place where they themselves have already sacrificed in order to make. Because it shows that they see that this is important. Because what's the point of making the tabernacle and then nobody even wants to go and use it? right? Like what's the point of building a church and then nobody wants to go to the church, right? So the idea of even building the church is a sign that the people who are invested in it, the people who are donating to it, feel that this is necessary. It's necessary for their salvation, for their children, for future generations, and so they are again willing to give and to sacrifice of what is theirs. God did not miraculously make it appear, but he allowed the people to get the blessing of participating in its construction, again, as an act of worship, to see that this is important. This is important. Much, much later, when the people had already settled in Israel, um, and God was, was rebuking the people, and he said, you have spent all this money and, and, and resources and material in order to build your own houses, all right? the houses of the people, like you built your own houses, and yet the, the house of God is still just a tent, right? Because later on, there was the permanent temple that was built in Jerusalem. But before that temple was built, this tabernacle, which they built here, was still what was used um, as a, like a temporary building uh, in Israel until the final temple was built. So as people were settling in Israel and they were expanding and building and doing all this thing for themselves, God rebuked them and said, you are you know, spending all this effort on your own houses but what about my house? You're still leaving my house as like this temporary structure. Where is my house? Where is the house that you're going to build for me? And then, of course, at that point, everybody also um, shared in donating to the temple. Um, so, so again, God wants us to, to, to give. He wants this. This is a part of our act of worship, to give to him, to even make the place of his that is his house where we will go and worship him in. The rulers brought onyx stones, and the stones to be set in the ephod, this is the clothing of the priest, and in the breastplate, and spices and oil for the light, for the anointing oil, and for the sweet incense. The children of Israel brought a free will offering to the Lord. All the men and women whose hearts were willing to bring material of all kinds of work 
which the Lord by the hand of Moses had commanded to be done. So the free will offering, because they are giving it out of their free will. It is, it is, it is freely given. And Moses said to the children of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, in wisdom and understanding, in knowledge and all manner of workmanship, to design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood, and to, s to work in all manner of artistic workmanship. What's interesting is that you see this occupation, which is artist, essentially, and craftsman. And yet, in this, we read that God has filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding in order to do this job. Like This isn't like the, 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 the role that you would typically imagine when we say that somebody is filled with the Spirit of God. Like, like You could think of like someone who is a monk or someone who is a priest or a bishop or, or a servant, like Sunday school servant or something like that, where it's like someone who is like directly talking to the people about God or directly serving the people in that way, like the ministry of the Word, serving people, praying for them, healing the sick, like those kinds of things. Um, maybe it's easy for us to think about the idea that someone is filled with the Spirit of God to do those things. But here he's just talking about an artist and saying this artist, okay, he was filled with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and all manner of workmanship to design artistic works. Like the talent that he had was given to him by God and God wanted him to use that talent to further the kingdom of God in the work of the tabernacle. So it says that all of our occupations, all of our talents, all the things that God has given us, that the Spirit of God works in them, that the Spirit of God gives them to us for some purpose, right? That we are then to discover what they are. Actually, I, I think, I remember if it was a couple of weeks ago or when it was that we spoke about how th these people who were kind of called to this service, maybe they never even realized what their calling was until now. Like why did had God given them the gifts that they had and they had never really been called to use them in such an important or significant way until this moment where they realized that God had been preparing them their whole life for this, right? For, for this moment where they are now able to use these skills and, and these talents. In the book of Sirach, the wisdom of Sirach, chapter 38, it's a kind of a famous chapter that talks about how God works through the physician. And God works through the doctor. Um, and it, it's speaking about how like everything that essentially that science does, that medicine does, is actually a healing. The healing is, is something that God does through. So it's not like we look at it in terms of there's like the secular um, like science and then the, the religious is a separate thing, but that God is the one who works through the physician to heal. Okay, And then in that chapter also, it mentions other occupations as well. And it mentions artisans and different people who also the Spirit of God is working in them. So we see that every good work that we do, even in the world that we are working with our talents that we have been given, even to make a living for ourselves, is something that is God-given and that God wants us to use it not only for ourselves and for to make a living and so on, but to also use it for him. And he has put in his heart the ability to teach in him and Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach, the of the tribe of Dan. 
He has filled them with skill to do all manner of work of the engraver and the designer and the tapestry maker in blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine linen and of the weaver, those who do every work and those who design artistic works. Okay, again, all of this is from God. And Bezalel and Aholiab and every gifted artisan in whom the Lord has put wisdom and understanding to know how to do all manner of work for the service of the sanctuary shall do according to all that the Lord has commanded. Okay. This is one of the ways, you know, like when we speak about God has called a certain person to do something. Like we, we use that language. Like God is calling this person to do something. How do we know that? Like how, what does that even mean? Does that mean that there's some miracle or we hear the voice of God coming from heaven saying this person needs to do such and such? Well, in this case, uh, God is directly speaking. Okay. But nowadays we still say that. We still say that. How does, for instance, that the bishop know whom God is calling to be a pri to priesthood? Okay. This is it because he sees some vision? No, as far as I know, that's not it. Um, the people who are called for a specific service, you look at the gifts that they have been given, and you see if it matches the service that that you know that you are think considering them for. That's how you know. Like you, you, you if a person, I the gifts that God has given them, or the desire that God has given them in their heart matches something. And there is just like the synergy and this fitting of like, you know, their, their talents, their skills to the work, then it could be that God is calling them to this. Right. Like, how is it that, you know, if you were to, to look around and say, who are the people who are going to be the ones, the artisans and the craftsmen to work on the tabernacle? And then you see like, OK, Bez Bezalel and Aholiab and these other people who are like excellent artists and you say, OK, maybe it's you. You're the one with excellent you know, artistic works, you're the one who can work and do this, right? You wouldn't pick somebody like me who can't draw at all, right? You wouldn't say that God is calling me to do that because I don't have the gifts to do that, right? So so here, one of the ways that we, we hear the calling of God is we see what are, the, what are the, the, the jobs, the services, the projects, the things that are around me that fit my talents. Those are the things that maybe I'm called for. Those are the things that maybe I, I feel like strongly connected. I want to do that because I feel like it, I have the skills to do that. It's, a, it's one of the ways that God communicates with us to make us feel like things around us are, are kind of well matched to my own skills. Then Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every gifted artisan in whose heart the Lord had put wisdom. Everyone whose heart was stirred to come and do the work. And they received from Moses all the offering which the children of Israel had brought for the work of the service of making the sanctuary. So they continued bringing to him freewill offerings every morning. So all the things that the people had brought, all the donations the people had brought, right? And then all the artisans and the craftsmen, all these people who were gifted, Moses gave them all of the stuff and said, build. Do use this stuff to build. Then all the craftsmen who were doing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work he was doing. And they spoke to Moses, saying, The people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded us to do. Like the people were so generous and wanting to participate in the service that they brought far more than 
they could even use, right? Which is again a sign of love. Like these people are, they, they, they want to give. So Moses gave a commandment, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man nor woman do any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. And the people were restrained from bringing. For the, people, for, for the material they had was sufficient for all the work to be done, indeed too much. Right? Compare this to the opposite attitude, which is the attitude of doing the minimum. Or maybe like what we said before, the attitude of just kind of wanting to hide under the radar. Somebody else is going to do it. Someone else is going to pay for it. Someone else is going to take that position or that job or that inconvenience or whatever. And so, I, I, you know, I'm just kind of like, I'm not necessary. You know, <laughs> I have to confess that I do this sometimes, like when, um, when, when there's like a, a chat among the priests and somebody says, we need someone to do such and such who would like to volunteer. And then I tell myself, like, okay, if I just don't answer right away, then maybe someone else will answer first. So I never actually said no, I'm not going to do it. But I also didn't have to say yes, right? So, yeah, don't do that. Um, the, idea that, the idea that we want to just do what's comfortable, okay? We want to just do what's comfortable. And even these people could have thought to themselves, well, there's already so many other people bringing stuff. I don't have to do it. But they still felt compelled. They still felt like... Um, desiring to give, they wanted to give to God. Then all the gifted artisans among them who worked on the tabernacle made ten curtains woven of fine linen and of blue, purple, and scarlet thread with artistic designs of cherubim, they made them. The length of each curtain was 28 cubits and the width of each uh, curtain four cubits. The curtains were all the same size. So we're going to now go through the details um, of actually building the things that were mentioned before, whereas before it was just uh, the commandment of the, the design plans and the instructions of how to build it, here they're actually making it. And he coupled five curtains to one another, and the other five curtains he coupled to one another. He made loops of blue yarn on the edge of the curtain on the selvage of one set. Likewise, he did on the outer edge of the other curtain of the second set. Fifty loops he made on one curtain, and fifty loops he made on the edge of the curtain on the end of the second set. The loops held one curtain to another, and he made fifty clasps of gold and coupled the curtains to one another with the clasps that it may be one tabernacle. He made curtains of goat's hair for the tent over the tabernacle. He made eleven curtains. The length of each curtain was thirty cubits, and the width of each curtain four cubits. The eleven curtains were the same size. He coupled five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves, and he made fifty loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in one set, and fifty loops he made on the edge of the curtain on the second set. He also made fifty bronze clasps to couple the tent together, that it may be one. Th then he made a covering for the tent of ramskins dyed red, and a covering of badger skins above that. For the tabernacle he made boards of acacia wood, standing upright. The length of each board was ten cubits, and the width of each board a cubit and a half. Do you have a question? Okay. Do we like have the symbolism, symbolism of all of these things somewhere? We talked about it the first time, with the when we were talking about the um, the um, when God first gave the instructions, 
we went much more deeply into the meanings of these things and the different colors and what do they mean and so on. That's why I'm not repeating it here. But if you go to the, I can't remember the, the chapter, but it was when Moses was on the mountain and he first gave him this instructions, then that's when we talked about it more. But even what I talked about was not like super in-depth. I just tried to highlight like main points. But there are um, commentaries that go like very, very deep, like from the fathers that would go very deep into like each point. And, and different people had different opinions um, about, you know, you could look at it this way, you could look at it this way. But some of it is explained in the, in the previously when we discussed. Okay. Would I like find it in Abuna Tadros Malati's commentary? Um, there is some of it, yes. Some of it is there. Yeah. Each board had two tenons for binding one to another. Thus he made for all the boards of the tabernacle. And he made boards for the tabernacle, 20 boards for the south side. 40 sockets of silver he made to go under the 20 boards, two sockets under each of the boards for its two tenons. And for the other side of the tabernacle, the north side, he made 20 boards and their 40 sockets of silver, two sockets under each of the boards. For the west side of the tabernacle, he made six boards. He also made two boards for the two back corners of the tabernacle. And they were coupled at the bottom and coupled together at the top by one ring. Thus he made both of them for the two corners. So there were eight boards in their sockets, 16 sockets of silver, two sockets under each of the boards. And he made bars of acacia wood, five for the boards on one side of the tabernacle, five bars for the boards on the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the boards of the tabernacle on the far side westward. And he made the middle bar to pass through the boards one from one end to the other. He overlaid the boards with gold, made their rings of gold to be holders for the bars, and overlaid the bars with gold. And he made a veil of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. It was worked with an artistic design of cherubim. He made for it four pillars of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold with their hooks of gold, and he cast four sockets of silver for them. He also made a screen for the tabernacle door of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen made by a weaver, and its five pillars with their hooks, and he overlaid their capitals and their rings with gold, but their five, uh, but their five sockets were bronze. Okay, that was the tent itself. Okay. Now he's going to start speaking about the things that are inside the tabernacle. Then Bezalel made the Ark of Acacia wood. Okay, so the Ark is the Ark of the Covenant that goes in the Holy of Holies, okay, in the innermost part of the tabernacle. Made it of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits was its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. He overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside and made a molding of gold all around it. And he cast for it four rings of gold to be set in its four corners, two rings on one side and two rings on the other side. So again, th there's these rings, and the rings you're supposed to have the poles that go into the rings so you could have people carrying it like on their shoulders, walking with it. Um, that's how it was supposed to be carried. But unfortunately, um, later on, we see that the Israelites, um, instead of carrying it this way, the way that it was supposed to be carried, they would put it on a cart um, for convenience and carry it around on a cart, um, which was not how God had commanded them to carry it. He made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold, and he put the poles into the rings at the sides of the ark to bear the ark. He also made the mercy seat of pure gold. The mercy seat is the two cherubim, the angels that are on top of the ark of the covenant, um, which is where God would appear 
um, on the, the times where where um, where where uh, the whole the arch the ar- the high priest would go in to offer sacrifice, um, and God would appear there on the mercy seat. He also made the mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits was its length, and a cubit and a half its width. He made two cherubim of beaten gold. He made them of one piece at the two ends of the mercy seat, one cherub at one end of this side and the other cherub at the other end on that side. He made the cherubim at the two ends of one piece with the mercy seat. The two cherubs were, would look, were looking at each other with their wings outstretched, the tips of their wings. Oh, here's a picture of it. The tips of their wings touching. The cherubim spread out their wings above and covered the mercy seat with their wings. They faced one another. The faces of the cherubim were toward the mercy seat. He made the table of acacia wood. The two cubits was its length and a cubit its width and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold and he made a molding of gold all around it. Also, he made a frame of a handbreadth all around it and made a molding of gold for the frame all around it. And he cast for it four rings of gold and put the rings on the four corners that were at its four legs. The rings were close to the frame as holders for the poles to bear the table. And he made the poles of acacia wood to bear the table and overlaid them with gold. He made of pure gold the utensils which were on the table, its dishes, its cups, its bowls, and its pitchers for pouring. He also made, you remember this table, what, was this, what would be on this table? This is the table of showbread. Twelve breads. Twelve breads, and the breads represented? The tribes. The twelve tribes. And how would the breads get there? The from priest. The grain, from the grain offerings? No, the priest would make the bread. Okay, he would, he would make the bread every week. He would make the bread. And only he could eat the bread. He also made the lampstand of pure gold, of hammered work. He made the lampstand, its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs, and its flowers were of the same piece. And six branches came out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. There were three bowls made like almond blossoms on one branch with an ornamental knob and a flower, and three bowls made like almond blossoms on the other branch with an ornamental knob and a flower, and so for the six branches coming out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself were four bowls made like almond blossoms, each with its ornamental knob and flower. There was a knob under the first two branches of the same knob, like very, very detailed, like where all the decorations are and everything. A knob under the second two branches of the same, and a knob under the third two branches of the same, according to the six branches extending from it. Their knobs and their branches were of one piece. All of it was one hammered piece of pure gold, and he made its seven lamps, its wick trimmers, and its trays of pure gold. Of a talent of pure gold, he made it with all its utensils. So there's the golden lampstand. It was very big, it stood on the ground. Like this wasn't something you put on a table, but it was very large. He made the incense altar, so this is yet another thing, the altar of incense, of acacia wood. Its length was a cubit, its width a cubit, it was a square, and two cubits was its height. Its horns were of one piece with it. And he overlaid it with pure gold, its top, its sides all around, and its horns. He also made for it a molding of gold all around it. He made two rings of gold for it under its molding by its two corners on both sides as holders for the poles uh, with which to bear it. 
and he made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. There's the altar of incense. He also made the holy anointing oil and the pure incense of sweet spices according to the work of the perfumer. So this anointing oil was was is, is used for the, like the anointing and consecration of all of these items um, in the tabernacle. He made the altar of burnt offering of acacia wood. Five cubits was its length, five cubits its height, as it was uh, uh, square. This is now the altar of burnt offering that's outside the the, ta the tabernacle. This is where the animal sacrifices were, were to be done. Um, and its height was three cubits. He made its horns on its four corners. The horns were of one piece with it, and he overlaid it with bronze. He made all the utensils for the altar, the pans, the shovels, the basins, the forks, and the fire pans, all its utensils made of bronze. He made a gate, a grate of bronze network for the altar under its rim, midway from the bottom. He cast four rings for the four corners of the bronze grating as holders for the poles, and he made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with bronze. Then he put the poles into the rings on the sides of the altar with which to bear it, he made the altar hollow with boards. Do you remember these four horns that are on the corners of this? What did we say about those? Remember? Horn of salva salvation? Yeah, the horns of salvation. And whenever someone was like running away from someone who was trying to kill them, like let's say a person um, committed manslaughter, like they killed someone accidentally. And the person who is like the relative of the person who was killed is trying to get revenge on th on that person. So the person would run and hold on to these horns as like a, 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 a essentially saying that that he is um, he is to be protected. He 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 cannot be killed for what it is that he had done. And um, we refer to the Christ like in the prophecies. He's referred to as the horn of salvation because he is the one who protects us from the consequences of our sin by forgiving us our sins. So he is the horn of salvation and of a spiritual sense. This is the, f the actual horns of sal the actual horns that are here on the um, on the altar is, is here. These are the ones that it's referring to. He made the laver of bronze. Okay, so this was where the priest would wash, okay, which was also outside the tabernacle. He made the lever of bronze and its base of bronze from the bronze mirrors of the serving women who uh, assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then he made the court on the south side. The hangings of the court were of five woven fine woven linen, 100 cubits long. There were 20 pillars for them with 20 bronze sockets. The hooks of the pillars and their bands were silver. On the north side, the hangings were 100 cubits long with 20 pillars and their 20 bronze sockets. So he's talking now about the, the essentially the fence, the fence that enclosed the tabernacle, which included the outer court area. That's where the altar of burnt offering and the bronze laver uh, were. And so he's making now this outside fence, enclosing the area of the tabernacle. The hooks of the pillars and their bands were silver. And on the west side, there were hangings of 50 cubits with 10 pillars and their 10 sockets. The hooks and the pillars and their bands were silver. For the east side, the hangings were 50 cubits. The hangings of one side of the gate were 15 cubits long with their three pillars and their three sockets. That's the door that where you enter. 
And the same for the other side of the court gate on this side that were hangings of 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. All the hangings of the court all around were of fine woven linen. The sockets for the pillars were bronze, the hooks for the pillars and their bands were silver, and the overlay of their capitals was silver, and all the pillars of the court had bands of silver. The screen, sorry, this is the gate. This is the gate. The screen for the gate of the court was woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and of fine woven linen. The length was 20 cubits, and the, height wa and the height along its width was five cubits, corresponding to the hangings of the court. And there were four pillars with their four sockets of bronze. Their hooks were silver, and the overlay of their capitals and their bands was silver. Okay, so here you can kind of see an overview. The fence all the way around, and there's the gate on the left where the people are walking in. That first thing inside the outer court, that's the altar of the burnt offering where the priest would offer the sacrifices. And then there is the, um, closer there to the tabernacle, there is the, um, the bronze laver where they would wash from all of the blood and everything from the offering. And then th the tabernacle itself, when you go inside, um, that's where you find all the other articles that were mentioned. This is the inventory of the tabernacle the tabernacle of the testimony, which was counted according to the commandment of Moses for the service of the Levites by the hand of Ithamar, son of Aaron the priest. Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, the tribe of Judah, made all that the Lord had commanded Moses, and with him was Aholiab, the son of Ahasamach uh, of the tribe of Dan, an engraver and designer, a weaver of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and of fine linen. All the gold that was used in all the work of the holy place, that is the gold of the offering, was 29 talents and 730 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. And the silver from those who were numbered uh, of the congregation was 100 talents and 107 uh, and 1,775 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. A becca for each man, that is half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. For every one included in the numbering of the 20 years old and above, for 603,550 men. You can see that's uh, many, many people. And from the hundred talents of silver were cast the sockets of the sanctuary and the bases of the veil, 100 sockets from the 100 talents, one talent for each socket. Then from the 1,775 shekels, he made hooks for the pillars, overlaid their capitals, and made bands for them. The veil is um, the, the curtain that would separate the holy from the holy of holies inside the tabernacle. The offering of bronze was 70 talents and the 2,400 shekels, and with it he made the sockets for the door of the tabernacle of meeting, the bronze altar, the bronze grating for it, and all the utensils for the altar. The sockets for the court all around the bases for the court gate, uh, all the pegs for the tabernacle, and all pegs for the court all around. Okay. I think probably we're going to be able to finish the whole book today. Because we'll just keep going and we're going to finish. N now they're going to discuss the details. So that was all the tabernacle. Now they're going to discuss the details of the, um, the, the garments of the priest. Of the blue, purple, and scarlet thread, they made garments of ministry for ministering in the holy place and made the holy garments for Aaron as the Lord had commanded Moses. 
He made the, the ephod of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread of fine woven linen. And they beat the gold into thin sheets and cut it into threads to work it, work it in with the blue, purple, and scarlet thread and the fine linen into artistic designs. They made shoulder straps for it to couple it together. It was coupled together at its two wedges. And the intricately woven band of his ephod was on, was on it was of the same workmanship, woven of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and of fine woven linen as the Lord had commanded Moses. And they set onyx stones enclosed in settings of gold. They were engraved as signets are engraved with the names of the sons of Israel. Remember we said that he, the priest would carry um, the names of all the tribes and these stones that represented. So he would have them on these onyx stones that are on the shoulders. Um, and then he would also have these different jewels that were on the breastplate that represented also all the tribes of Israel. So essentially that the priest is carrying like all of Israel on him, uh, showing like that he is responsible for them, that he is interceding for them, that he, he has like he, he is serving them. And that's why he's always reminded of this by him carrying their names um, uh, on him and the jewels on him representing all the tribes. He put them on the shoulders of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel, as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he made the breastplate artistically woven like the workmanship of, e of the ephod of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and of fine woven linen. They made the breastplate square by doubling it. A span was its length and a span its width when doubled. And they set it on four rows of stones, a row for the sardius. These are the 12 stones that are going to be on the breastplate. Um, a row with a sardius, a topaz, and an emerald was the first row. The second row, a turquoise, a sapphire, and a diamond. The third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. The fourth row, a beryl, onyx, and jasper. They were enclosed in settings of gold in their mountings. There were 12 stones according to the names of the sons of Israel, according to their names engraved like a signet, each one with its own name according to the 12 tribes. And they made chains for the breastplate at the ends like braided cords of pure gold. They also made two settings of gold and two gold rings and put the two rings on the two ends of the breastplate. And they put the two braided chains of gold in the two rings on the ends of the breastplate. The two ends of the two braided chains they fastened in the two settings and put them on the shoulder straps of the ephod in the front. And they made two rings of gold and put them on the two ends of the breastplate on the edge of it, which was on the inward side of the ephod. They made two other gold rings and put them on the two shoulder straps underneath the ephod towards its front, right at the seam above the intricately woven band of the ephod. And they bound the breastplate by means of its rings to the rings of the ephod with a blue cord, so that it would be above the intricately woven band of the ephod, and that the breastplate would not come loose from the ephod, as the Lord had commanded Moses. So again, all these details we're reading are, are retelling of everything that was said before. He made the robe of the ephod of woven work, all of blue. And there was an opening in the middle of the robe, like the opening in a coat of mail, with a woven binding all around the opening, so that it would not tear. They made they made on on the hem of the robe pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet, and a fine woven linen. They uh, and they made bells of pure gold, and put the bells between the pomegranates on the hem of the robe, all around between the pomegranates, a bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate, all around the hem of the robe to minister in as the Lord had commanded Moses. 
They made tunics artistically woven of fine linen for Aaron and his sons, a turban of fine linen, exquisite hats of fine linen, short trousers of fine woven linen, and a sash of fine woven linen with blue, purple, and scarlet thread made by a weaver as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then they made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold, and they wrote on it an inscription like the engraving of a signet, Holiness to the Lord. And they, tr and they tied to it a blue cord to fasten it above on the turban as the Lord had commanded Moses. Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished, and the children of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. And they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent and all its furnishings, its clasps, its boards, its bars, its pillars, and its sockets, the covering of ram skins dyed red, and the covering of badger skins, and the veil of the covering, and the ark of the testimony, with its poles and the mercy seat, the table, all its utensils, and the showbread, the pure gold lampstand with its lamps, the lamp set in order, all its utensils, and the oil for the light, the gold altar, the anointing oil, and the sweet incense, the screen for the tabernacle door, the bronze altar, its grate of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the laver and its base, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its sockets, the screen for the court gate, its cords and its pegs, all the utensils for the service of the tabernacle, for the tent of meeting and the garments of the ministry to minister in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and his sons, garments to minister as priests, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did all the work. Then Moses looked over all the work, and indeed they had done it, as the Lord had commanded, just so they had done it. And Moses blessed them. Like at the end of all of this effort of doing all of this work, presenting it all to Moses, and Moses was happy and, 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 and satisfied that they did exactly what God had commanded. They didn't do something from their own mind or thinking that this would be better or anything. They said, we are going to do what God said. Just as an aside um, about this, we mentioned this also before. The idea that God is so detailed in what he wants the people to do says something about him, that he is very detail-oriented, and he, there are certain things that he accepts, and there's certain things he rejects. So, for instance, if some of these artisans could have said, you know what, I'm a creative person, I want to uh, modify what it is that God requested, um, to make it better. I think that I can make it better. I think that I can maybe change some of the materials, change some of the colors, change some of the, some of the dimensions, and I'm going to offer it because that's what's in my mind, and that's what I am excited to do and what I want to do, and I feel like what, what God is asking is actually not the best, and it could be done in a better way, right? God would reject this. And he would say, this is not what I asked you to do. And even though they might not have understood why everything had to be the way that it was, it was important to follow what God said because they were submitting to his will. Similarly today, when people try to uh, worship God not according to the way that he has called us to, but according to our own minds, according to our own thinking, I think that God would accept such and such. And I think that he would because he is reasonable, he is uh, merciful, he is doesn't really care so much about this and that, and all that matters is that we love God and we love our neighbor, and so I'm going to do what I think is right, even though it isn't exactly what God has requested, right? Sometimes we think that we can offer something to him 
that he didn't ask for, that he didn't want, in a way he didn't ask, and we think that we're doing it with a good motive or intention, but God rejects. Like, for instance, when Saul, the king, uh, is waiting for Samuel, the prophet, to come to offer sacrifice before it's time for them to go to battle. So he's waiting, 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 and Samuel doesn't come. So Samuel, as the priest, was the only one who could offer the sacrifice. But King Saul thought to himself, well, um, I have to go to battle, so it's better for me to just offer the sacrifice myself rather than not to have the sacrifice at all because Samuel is delayed. So he went and he offered the sacrifice himself. But the result of that was not God looking at him and saying, well, you did the best you could do, Saul. It wasn't your fault. Samuel's the one who was late. Um, and I forgive you because you went and you offered the sacrifice on your own. Actually, because of that sin, God rejected Saul from being the king because he took upon himself the role of the priest. Okay, So again, the idea is we should not attribute to God what we consider to be reasonable. Right, what we consider to be reasonable. God said this way, and maybe we don't understand exactly why. I mean, we can think of uh, meditations and interpretations for why certain materials are used, for why certain dimensions are there, and things, and, and, and there have been. But that doesn't mean that we really, really, like, why did, why did you have to specify each dimension like that? What if it had been off? You know, wh why would that matter, right? But to God, this is what he said. And this is what he wanted them to do. And in the end, Moses was satisfied when he looked over all of the work and he said what? They did it as the Lord had commanded. That's what he cared about. He wasn't there to judge its beauty. He wasn't there to judge, you know, anything about it except that they followed the instructions that God gave. That was the only criteria, right? That was the only criteria. Yes. So the question is, when when can we say that we can make exceptions and that God will understand versus when can we say or when do we say what I just mentioned, which is that God asks us to do something a certain way and that's the only way that it is. What do you guys think? Huh? Father confession. Don't blame it on us. <laughs> so uh, we know that later uh, there was a time where King David was on the run and he didn't have any food to eat. And so he went into the temple or into the tabernacle and he ate of the showbread, which he was not allowed to eat. But God allowed it because he wasn't condemned for it. And actually Christ used this example later on in the New Testament to essentially say that, speaking like to the Pharisees and saying like the Pharisees are too legalistic. Okay, and he used this as an example. So how do we understand like what is the, how, how, do, we, how do we mesh the two things? Why is it that God would reject Saul? Why is it that God would be so specific about things like, for instance, a man named Uzzah whenever he tried to prevent the Ark of the Covenant from falling on the ground, he touched it to push it up on the cart that it was on. And because he touched it, God struck him dead. 
because he wasn't allowed to touch the Ark of the Covenant. So why would God do that? But then at the same time be okay with King David eating of the showbread? Well, for the example of King David, like there was a restriction still, like he like he had to abstain from from like sexual activities uh, beforehand. But it, but it still wasn't allowed. Was it David and all his men who were who who ate it, or was it David only? I think the people with him as well. Yeah. So there are things that are what what is the difference between these things? So first of all, King David was going to die of starvation. So there was like a real need for him to do that. Okay? Um in the case of Uzzah, the people were carrying the Ark of the Covenant on a cart, which was already wrong. Like, that shouldn't even have been happening. Like, the whole setup was wrong, right? And it's like God made an example of Uzzah, but all the people there were doing the wrong thing. Um, when God asks someone to make something of a certain dimension, make it. Like, like you, you can make it whatever dimension you want. It's not like there's something preventing you from making the dimension. So the issue has to do with your intention and your will. Like if somebody says, no, I choose not to make it this way. I choose to make it another way because I think that's better. That's different than the situation of King David where he was going to die because of lack of food and that was the only food available to him. And so it was really a necessity, right? We do always speak about how God is, um, God is judging the heart, Okay. And we do know that there are exceptional situations that people cannot follow the commandment of God to the full. But the question is, is when there's no exceptional situation and when we are free to do whatever we want, what do we choose to do? Because those are, that's the, the, the more common, right? That's the more common scenario is that we have the option to choose to do what, what, what can be done, and but we choose not to do it. We choose to do something else. So... God is not legalistic. God has flexibility. But when there's a real need of flexibility, not just, you know, we say, well, because it doesn't matter. The point is, is it does matter. Just because King David ate of the showbread doesn't mean it was okay to eat of the showbread. Just God allowed it in his situation because of, because of that. It doesn't mean that if somebody else came and ate the showbread that it would be okay. It doesn't mean that we can look at it and say, well, eating of the showbread, even though God said it should be for the priest, it's not a big deal. No, it's a big deal. It's a big deal because God said it was a big deal, right? But we can't take the one example, the extreme example, and make that to be the rule, right? Like, for instance, many of you might have heard of the this, this story, I'll, I'll say it, about the woman who was, this was long ago, woman who was traveling by ship to baptize her son. And uh, on the journey, there was a storm and they thought that they were going to die and the ship was going to sink. So the woman, because she was afraid to for her son to die without being baptized, she cut herself and she took the blood and anointed her son with the blood and called it to be a baptism of blood. Okay? 
Then they didn't end up dying, and the ship ended up making it to the destination. And so she took him to the, to the church to be baptized. And as the priest was taking the child to put him in the water, the water solidified, didn't, 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 you know, became solid. And then the priest lifted the baby up again and then tried to do it a second time, and the water became solid again. And they did it three times. And so he asked her, What's go- like, tell me your story, essentially. And so she told him everything that happened. So he said, God has accepted the baptism that you, that you performed. Okay. So does that mean that that's a legitimate way that we baptize people? First of all, we don't make theology based on these stories. Yeah. But, <laughs> but, but, but let's, say, let's say that this is true. Like, do we then say, well, God accepts this, so why do we even do the baptism the, the way we do it? Why don't we just have that instead, right? Maybe because there was a very, very, uh, s- like, there was a very, very, like, exceptional situation. And because of the faith of that mother, God accepted it because she believed and because she acted on the best, you know, th- on behalf of her child. But that doesn't mean that becomes a rule. But it doesn't become, become a law. I give you another example of stories that are said. Okay, like there's a story of um, Saint Porphyrius about the jester who like uh, made like a, a mo- uh, like a mock about baptism, and so he was like pretending to be baptism, but God took it seriously. Oh yeah, yeah. As when they were playing as children, right? Um, no, he was uh, actually no, he was like making an act like in front of a pagan emperor. Oh, okay. Uh, yes, and God and God considered it to be a real baptism, even though it was like a mocking way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you could look at that too. Um, there's another story about someone who was walking outside of a church while they were praying inside, and he had like a orban with him. That he was carrying it, and that as he was walking, he saw that there was blood coming out of it, as though that the prayers that were being prayed inside of the church had con- take like like. Those stories like that, you, 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 can't, you can't turn them into like a theology or turn them into saying, okay, well, because that happened, then that means that's the thing that happens. Like, like some people look at stories like that and says, you know, we can't have bread anywhere near the altar because if there's bread anywhere near the altar, maybe all the bread in the whole church is going to be, become the body of Christ. No, that's not what we believe, right? Maybe God, if, again, if this story is true, Maybe God would do something like that to emphasize the reality of the body and the blood in a way to get people's attention for it. But it doesn't mean that that is a rule that applies, right? So we shouldn't take the exceptions and make them to be like, that's just the way that it is. That that's, the, that's, the way, that's what we believe actually happens all the time. That's the way we can do baptism. That's what we believe about the, the, the body and the blood. Like if any bread anywhere in the vicinity of the church, it's going to like be converted to that. Or someone who is pretending to baptize someone, but it's not really a true baptism. Or eating of the showbread um, at a time when you're not supposed to and that it's okay. Those kinds of things. So in every way that we have the ability to understand what God wants us to do, and we have the ability to practice it, we do. But what is rejected is when I take my own thoughts my own ideas, and even though I have the ability to do what God wants, I say, no, that's not important. It's not necessary. It's not required. I'm just going to do what I think instead. Because then it's about an issue of the will. 
right? I'm imposing my will and my way on God instead of submitting myself to his. God is not limited by rules or laws, and that's what legalism does. It's uh, put a limit on the unlimited God. God isn't limited by rules, right? So, like, you know, we talk about, like, the sacraments that are necessary for salvation. Okay? What if somebody doesn't perform any of those sacraments in their life? Is God compelled based on just that fact by itself? Is God compelled to send them to hell? He's not. He can do what he wants. Right? He can do what he wants. He makes a law for us. But he is not bound. Right? He is not bound. He can do whatever exceptional case he wants. And it's not for us to say one way or the other. But it doesn't mean that we can say, well, look at this one exceptional case. Because of that one exceptional case, that becomes the rule for everyone. So because God said, well, in this specific case, this was allowed, that means it's allowed for everyone. No, we can't say that either, right? Um, so I don't know if that answers your question. Okay. Unless we have to finish this chapter because this chapter is not going to be enough to finish next time, and so we're just going to... It's pretty fast. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, you shall put in it the Ark of the Testimony and the partition off the Ark with the veil, because it goes in the Holy of Holies. And you shall bring in the table and arrange the things that are to be set in order on it. And you shall bring in the lampstand and light its lamps. You shall also set the altar of gold for the incense before the Ark of the Testimony and put up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. So setting up everything that they had made. Then you shall set the altar of the burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And you shall set the laver between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar and put water in it. You shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen at the court gate. And you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it. And you shall hallow it and all its utensils and it shall be holy. You shall anoint the altar of the burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar. The altar shall be most holy. So this uh, anointing and consecration of all the things because they are holy. Like they cannot be used for any other purpose. You know, just like you cannot take the chalice um, that we use on the altar and use it to drink anything, right? It is consecrated specifically for the use in the altar. And you shall anoint the laver and its base and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the door of the tabernacle of meeting and wash them with water. You shall put the holy garments on Aaron and anoint him and consecrate him that he may minister to me as priest. So even Aaron himself is consecrated as priest. And you shall bring his sons and clothe them with the tunics. You shall anoint them as you anointed their father that they may minister to me as priests. For their anointing shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations. Thus Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded him, so he did. And it came to pass in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, that the tabernacle was raised up. So Moses raised up the tabernacle, fastened its sockets, set up its boards, put in its bars, and raised up its pillars. And he spread out the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent on top of it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony, which are the tablets, the two tablets, and put it into the ark, inserted the poles through the rings of the ark and put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle, hung up the veil of the covering and partitioned off the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He, he put the table in the tabernacle of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil 
And he set the bread in order upon it before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tabernacle of meeting across from the table on the south side of the tabernacle, and he lit the lamps before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the gold altar in the tabernacle of meeting in front of the veil, and he burned sweet incense on it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He hung up the screen at the door of the tabernacle, and he put the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle on the tent of meeting and the uh, and offered upon it the burnt offering and the green offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the laver between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar and put water for washing and Moses, Aaron and his sons would wash their hands uh, and their feet with water from it. Whenever they went into the tabernacle of meeting and when they came near the altar, they washed as the Lord had commanded Moses and he raised up the court all around the tabernacle and the altar and hung up the screen for the court gate. So Moses finished the work. So he set up everything that they had built. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So this, like everything that they were doing was like the human effort, right? Like the human effort of building, building, building. But then, after all of that, God came down as in the form of the cloud and covered the whole tabernacle. And it says the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Like the, the tabernacle has value. Because God is in it, right? Because it is the house of God. Not just because it is certain items, but because God is with the people there. God is the one who descends. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would go onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not journey till the day it was taken up. So as, as the people would travel from place to place, how would they know where to go and when to go? It's because this cloud would remain on the tabernacle until it was time to go. When it was time to go, the cloud would move. And so the people would pack up everything and pack up the tabernacle and travel being led by this pillar of cloud or pillar of fire at night. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day and fire was over it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And glory be to God forever. Amen. So this is the end of the book of Exodus. Um, the story continues uh, in, in Numbers where we see what happens after this. God willing, um, when we continue, we'll do a book from the New Testament and then maybe we can come back and see what happens next uh, in the story or, or maybe something else in the Old Testament after that. Leviticus. Any questions? Hmm? What do we do with Leviticus? We can do Leviticus. Leviticus is not as much like the, the story portion. It's more about the laws of the sacrifices and the other, other laws. Um, but we, we can do it. Um, not sure if we would do it first or, or later on. Yeah. Okay. You have a question? Okay. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day, and we thank you for every opportunity you give us to read your word and to understand it. Help us, O Lord, to learn from this book of how, O Lord, you took your people from slavery and led them, O Lord, to a place where they could worship you in preparation for them to enter the promised land. Help us also, O Lord, to come out of the slavery of sin uh, to, uh, from all of the attachments and the distractions in the world and to worship you, O Lord, and consecrate ourselves to you as you are leading us, O Lord, to the promised uh, kingdom of heaven. 
We thank you, O oh God, for your mercy and your kindness. We ask that you bless us, O oh Lord, and you forgive our sins and all our weaknesses, and you grant us, O oh Lord, a heart that is full of repentance and joy. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, and the communion of the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen. And also with your spirit.